What's your favorite drink? I have a few. Two that come to mind are Manhattan and an Old Fashioned. So the thing about these drinks is that they're mixtures, right? They come complete with a set of ingredients that by themselves are simply ingredients. They are wholly whole, all by themselves. And together, they come to make a great mix. Whoever made this drink, and whoever does make these drinks, talking about bartenders, mixologists, they practice. They practice putting ingredients together to create the perfect mix, the perfect balance. So that by the time you, the consumer, you, the imbiber, gets the drink, it goes down good, it goes down well, it goes down smooth. Now, during the experimentation process, things don't necessarily go as planned. There may be too much too much of one thing, too little of another. This mixture, if you will, can go flat or it could be explosive. It could be too spicy, it could be too nothing, too much of nothing, or it could just be gross. But that doesn't make any of those in separate individual components bad. It just means that together, they don't work properly. And what does the mixologist, the bartender, the experimenter do when coming up with the latest drink, the baker that's coming up with the latest confection? What do they do? They toss it in the trash, they pour it down the drain, and they start all over again. And depending on the person, there may be some disappointment. But they're not mad at those individual ingredients. And it would be absurd for those individual ingredients to be mad at one another. Because it's not their fault that they don't go together well. They just don't go together well. There's nothing inherently wrong with either or any of the ingredients. They just don't go well together they don't sit around and name call they don't tell each other that they're too much of this or too little of that or i wish you were more of this or you're this and you're that because here's the reality they are wholly whole by themselves now if you apply the same doctrine to people or idea i don't know if it's doctrine that's a big uh that's got quite a bit of weight to it. If you apply the same theory to people, then it stands to reason that most of us are wholly whole. A good amount of us have done the work on us, especially if we're in our 40s, late 30s, early to mid 40s, late 40s, and beyond. Lived life, had children, learned a few things, been divorced, blah, blah, blah. And then there's plenty of people that don't. And there's plenty of people that don't, but let's remove them from this and just focus on the people that have done the work. The people that are interacting with one another and spending time trying to find a quote-unquote perfect match. Well, sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes things don't go well. And sometimes we resort to name-calling when things don't go well, which honestly doesn't really make any sense to me other than being hurt. And it is a result of being hurt because your own expectations are dashed. You lash out and you levy judgment and call names. But the reality is this. Everyone isn't meant to be together. Not too many people are meant to be together. I mean, if you want to talk about sexual relations, I mean, I guess anybody could be together. But no one is really meant, not too many people are meant to interact in an intimate relationship that is building towards something. I mean, it only stands to reason that that would be the case. Otherwise, there would be no reason for fidelity. You can have the most perfect person on paper. You can have the greatest person in the flesh, but if they don't match up with you, if they don't align for whatever reason, faith, interest, actual interest, chemistry, that doesn't make them bad. That doesn't make them wrong. That doesn't make them insensitive. That doesn't make them boring. 
That doesn't make them selfish. That doesn't make them oblivious. What it means is that they weren't the one for you and you weren't the one for them. And that's a blessing because you know before you get involved, you know before commitment is on the table, you know before expectations and standards are levied and have to be maintained because let's be frank in a relationship a committed relationship a marriage relationship a dating an ongoing dating relationship you have to get along to get along and if you can't get along you will not get along into the future with one another people are people everyone comes to the table with their own set of experiences and flavors and ingredients and that's what makes them beautiful and if it doesn't happen to work out between you and someone else so be it i've gotten to a point where i don't believe that it's worth judging a person in fact i actually refuse to speak bad on people when things don't work out because who am i to judge them they may not have been my cup of tea they probably were not my cup of tea they may not have done it for me, but I'm not going to berate them or levy some sort of judgment against them because ultimately, whatever that person isn't for me, they probably are for someone else and vice versa. So if someone's boring, for example, they might be exciting to someone else or they might be exactly what someone else wants. And that's okay. It just didn't work out for you or me or whomever. But that emotional attachment to expectations that this might be the one, man, they do all this stuff. I can envision myself being with them when things don't go well. Depending on where you are in life, that thing is hard to shake. You put your emotions out there. You put your feelings out there. You, you put yourself into someone's life only to be only for things to not work out. And trust me, even if someone's rejecting you, try not to take it personal because you're not being rejected. It's just not working out. And you're not and it not working out is the lesson and the blessing. I'm not going to say, oh, you being spared, da, 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 drop that zero, go with that hero, because that's just stupid stuff that people say to make themselves feel better. And again, it's disparaging and it's not fair to that other person. Not talking about somebody who's got a track record of being messy. I'm talking about someone you just met and don't know too much about. You have to give those individuals grace and move on, no matter how much it hurts. But like I said, emotional attachment to expectation and fantasy and fairy tale is a mother. It kept me in my marriage a whole 18 months after it was over and it'll wreak havoc on your dating life if you don't get it under control quick fast and in a hurry welcome to the dating after divorce survival guide after getting his master's degree and getting cursed out his second master's and getting kicked out eric payne decided to pursue his doctorate and getting his life right and staying in his own lane but upon getting all his degrees he realized he was a fish out of water in this new dating landscape eric was 28 years old when he met his ex-wife and was newly divorced at 43. The world had changed considerably since the days of StarTech beepers, Motorola flip phones, and Yahoo Chat. It is vicious out here in these new streets where taking pictures of yourself all day long with a phone and posting them on the internet is actually a thing. The Dating After Divorce Survival Guide is the story of Eric's journey from love and marriage to divorce to dating to hopefully love and marriage once more. See, sweet lady is badass. As an American people and beyond our shores, there is not a product or service that you nor I or you and I have used or experienced on an almost daily basis that she hasn't had her she hasn't had a hand in marketing, promoting, or developing. And I'll leave it at that. She, she was, she was good, man. I mean, after that 
failed date at the wine bar, we began speaking on a daily basis. She would call me after work or she would hit me up first thing in the morning. And like someone in a C-suite position, that was either very late or extremely early before parent waking hours to get yourself ready so you can get your kids ready. And we talked. I mean, she just shared her life with me, talked about stuff she was working on, talked about projects. And we went from trying to meet up at a golf resort to meeting up at some city. Like all the places were drivable for me and she would have to fly in. And, you know, it it was a cool coordination of events. I mean, it, it was nice to have someone who wanted to spend time with me and wanted to do something and had the means to do it. And we talked about budget and we talked about like everything. We just mapped it all out together. But then like at the last, and it was for Labor Day weekend because my daughter was going to be with her mom and I could do whatever I wanted. And then at the last minute, she said, I've been traveling so much. I've gone to like, I, I forgot the number. It was something crazy. Like I've made six trips in the last eight weeks or something like that. I just want to be home. Can you just meet me here in New York? Well, in New Jersey. And I said, sure, with one week to spare before the trip, I can do that. <laughs> so I switched up everything and then did my little diligence to find the cheapest possible flight given the short notice to New York. And I booked my flight. And then I realized I was like, oh, man. I could probably make this into like kind of a cool trip because I rem distinctly remember my daughter telling me after her annual trip to New York, summertime trip to New York, she said, Daddy, the aunties, I was talking about you to the aunties and grandma and grandpa, and they just all looked really sad. And I said, well, what they look sad about? She said, because... They haven't spoken to you. They don't know what's going on with you. They said they miss you. And they looked really sad. And I kind of smirked. And she said, you don't care, do you? I said, no, no, no. It's all good. It's all good, baby girl. It's all good. She said, no, I get it. And I said, nah, you know, I, I, I probably should reach out and let them know. Looking at my daughter, you know, because my daughter is the product of two families. And although at the time I had a tenuous peace with her mother, you know, that ripple effect of divorce is that there are all these other people that are affected. So her mother's side of the family and a good amount of her mother's friends were collateral damage. Collateral damage in the idea that I removed myself from the equation. I shut myself off the Facebooks and all of people's Instagrams and blocked and, and I, because I just, I didn't need anything reminding me of her. I didn't need anything reminding me of my past. I don't believe in being strong in the face of temptation, in the face of pain. I don't believe in that. I think that's stupid. I think it's an easy way to get set up and triggered all the time. What I, unless it's absolutely impossible, what I believe in is removal. And I'm not going to ask anybody to remove themselves from my life. So I'll just remove myself. And that's what I did. And two years after the fact, or three years, whatever it was, no, two years, sorry, 2017, people were like, I miss Eric. I miss him. I, I miss talking to him. I miss who he is. And I wanted to demonstrate for my daughter grace. So I told her that I was going to go to New York. And I told her that, she was, that I was going to visit family. Not her family, family. And she said, cool. Newark, New Jersey. Something came over me. When I saw the skyline, the New York City skyline, from outside the window of the plane, I got a charge, I got a chill, I got excited. It was the first time I had been back to New York since 
well, leaving. I mean, I went back one time for my daughter's godmother's graduation from grad school. But since leaving it, leaving New York for Atlanta when I was a married man, this was going to be my first time going back to New York as a person, as a human being, by myself, whatever. I had, a, I had, had a similar aha, eye-opening experience when I went to Destin, Florida with my daughter for spring break earlier in the year. It was the first time I had actually traveled somewhere just because, not to satisfy the yearning, pining of a woman. And I'm not saying that negatively. You know, I was married. The expectation was that we would go on vacation sometimes. The money wasn't there to ever do that because we just weren't good with money as a couple. But we didn't do it very much. But when we did do it, there was always pressure. There was always tickets being bought. There was always credit cards. There was always this, for me anyway, because I enjoy travel or, I'm sorry, I enjoy visiting places. I don't necessarily enjoy traveling to them. There was always this pressure. However, when I planned the trip to Destin with my daughter, there was this relief, this freedom that I felt where I was just traveling for the sake of me and her. But just for the sake of me, there was, other than a couple parents that we bumped into from her elementary school, there was no, nothing to, there was no pressure. We literally enjoyed every day, every hour, every moment, just because. The same was the case as I began to circle New York City Harbor and head to Newark, New Jersey. It was rainy. It was dark. I mean, it looked like Gotham City, to be perfectly honest with you, but that's what New York is. New York is Gotham City. It was a homecoming. I was back. I was coming back to where I first began, if you will. Yeah, I began in Chicago. Biologically, I began in Chicago. But I didn't start thinking, feeling, experiencing things until I became a New Yorker, until my classmates from Cornell were like, yeah, you're a mess. We need to take you down to the city and, 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 and show you what's up. What is showing me what's up? Getting me immersed in the hip-hop scene. Going down to the village back when there were light kits under cars like Suzuki Samurais and all the rest of that, where everybody was driving around in their booming systems, with their booming systems. Eighth Street in the village was Shoe Lane. That's where you got your shoes, that's where you got your Tims, that's where you got your sneakers. The place to eat was down at Eighth Street, down in the village. All of that came rushing back. My time living in Queens, my time owning my, my co-op in Queens, my time riding back and forth on the train, going down underneath the, you know, descending underground and showing up somewhere completely different, sometimes minutes, sometimes hours later, but without the use of a car. My car was a weekend thing. It was a pleasure thing, not a necessity. I mean, even grocery shopping, you could take a cart with you to the grocery store and walk home with your groceries. New York was the ultimate when it came to walking around and getting around. Whether it stank or not, whether it was dirty or not, all of that to be damned, it was just a place where you were, where you learned how to get by and get around and be active and be in control or get swallowed up by it. So I got off the plane in Newark and I was happy and excited and there was a pep in my step. I think I videotaped myself walking in my Jordans on Instagram and I walked through the terminal and I saw some of the kiosks and a lot of iPads were everywhere. There was a lot of touchscreen stuff everywhere. And everything was super expensive and overpriced. And I said, yeah, I'm back. Back to the land of the unaffordable. <laughs> and then I text C-Sweet Lady and said, hey, I'm here. I'm coming off of Delta, you know. No, it wasn't Delta. It was United. I don't know what it was. Anyway, I'm coming off of whatever flight. I'm here. Saw the three dots on the iPhone. And she said, cool, here's my address. You can Uber here. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, Uber? But I'm in Newark, and you're in, not in Newark. You're in Jersey, but you're not in Newark. Like, how much, what's that going to cost? I didn't come here to, like, travel to you. I came here for you to scoop me up. Not knowing at the moment that she didn't have a car. Didn't even dawn on me that she didn't have a car. I mean, she drove a BMW here in Atlanta, but she was in New York. So anyway, 
She gave me her address. And I was in my feelings for a second. I mean, you know, I'm coming out to see you. You done switched all the arrangements around. I was planning to drive to meet up with her. You got me flying out here on a dime. Like, on the, on a, on a twist of a dime. Twist of a dime? Basically, I had to pivot and book a flight at the last minute to come out and see her. And then I got to get into an Uber. Or Lyft. I prefer Lyft. But I think I took an Uber. To come see you? To come to you? I mean, whatever. So, I know a lot of people have issues with their pickups and drop-offs at airports. Unfortunately for me, I was conditioned probably pre-divorce when my ex-wife stopped picking me up from the airport. But she did it, like, real, real, like, shisty. I would arrive at the airport, and, you know, you didn't, you don't have service if you don't pay for the Wi-Fi. And phone came on, and she'd be like, yeah, I'm not picking you up from the airport. I called my best friend. He was like, yo, man, don't sweat it. She probably doesn't want to deal with you and all of your drama and all the rest of that stuff. Interesting comment. But, you know, um, just hop on a train. That's what I do. I don't be worried about nobody trying to get, pick me up from the airport. You can take the train and then, you know, take an Uber. The only place I actually get picked up at this point in my life, the only actual, the only air, the only airport I get picked up from, and even then it's questionable, is when I go home to visit my parents in Chicago because the airports are just too far away from where I live. But if I have to, I will. And I think that those experiences have taught me to not necessarily necessarily rely on being picked up from the airport or even dropped off at the airport, and it's definitely gotten me out of my feelings about not someone not being able to for whatever the reason might be because there's usually a reason it's not a bad reason it's just a reason and I know that you know I think on the flip side women assign a lot of importance to being scooped up to that from the airport but I've also but you know again this woman said hey here's my address catch an uber you know again took it hard for like 2.2 seconds but then I said you know money don't mean nothing to her this isn't a big deal so this is just like, hey, just get here. And that's what I did. I just took in the sights. I, I looked out the window and I saw it was it was pouring. And I looked out the window and I just remember my gray days in New York. Gray days, bright days, whatever the architecture, the skyscrapers. Even though we were in Jersey, I remember like all of that when I used to travel to Ikea because Ikea was only in Jersey before it was in Long Island. As we got close to her place, he started to get turned around. I was like, oh Lord, here we go. It happens all the time. See, I wish she had picked me up. And he drops me off at this high rise building. And he drops me off at the back. He's like, look, this is the address. I looked at it myself. Yes, yeah, the address. There was no entrance. Now, I have no idea why neither he nor I decided to circle that block. But I texted her, or I called her, actually, and I said, hey, I'm here, but I don't know where to go in. I don't see where to go in. What's going on? She said, you got to, well, where are you? I kind of gave her a description. She said, walk down this block, walk around this block, and you'll see the entrance. And I'll have somebody there to let you up. When I got to the front door, I was like, oh, okay, well, this makes more sense. Fancy furniture, big open space, pretty chandelier. And I came to the counter and talked to the security guy, told him who I was there to see. I said, hey, I'm here to see Miss C-Sweet Lady. He said, oh, you must be Mr. Eric. Go right on up. It's on the 32nd floor. I said, okay, cool. Thanks, man. Get on the elevator and see that there's only 33 floors in the building. I was like, oh, shit. We in a deluxe apartment in the sky. I ride up the elevator and I get up on the 32nd floor and I don't really know where to go. And then a door cracks open. She peeks her head out and says, hey, come on in. It's a corner unit. Her floors are, our kitchen is granite. Her floors are marble. It's white, it's glass, panoramic views 
of the pier, the harbor, the pier, whatever it is. And it had been pretty much decimated by Hurricane Sandy, but I still had a view. And then I look out the left, I look to my left, and I see a golden torch in Lady Liberty right outside the window. And I said, are you kidding me? This chick has a view of the Statue of Liberty? Are you freaking kidding me? This is sexy as hell. She shows me where to put my bags. It's in her second bedroom. And I put my bags down. And here's my thinking. Here's my strategy. I'll crash here for the night. We'll spend the day together tomorrow and see where things go from there. Because I haven't seen her in a number of years. And the only time I saw her, we were workers. Yeah, we've talked on the phone a little bit, but so what? So I set my stuff down. I get a little comfortable. I come out and then I hang out with her. She invites me into her room, her bedroom's beautiful platform bed, king-size bed. And she's showing me, like, what she'd like to wear for the evening. She said, look, we're going to go get some food. My brother's coming to get us. I don't have a car. I don't have my car anymore. Matter of fact, I got into a pretty bad car accident. I was like, oh, wow, I'm sorry to hear that. And there went my whole thing about the car. So he's coming to get us, and we're going to get food. We're going to have dinner. She's like, he's cool. He's not going to give you a hard time. It's all good. We're going to have a good time. I said, cool. We talked about her outfit. We talked about her mom. We talked about family. We talked about, I asked her, you know, I said I I wanted to visit my, I said, I don't really know what to call them. Talking about my ex's parents. She's like, they're your in-laws. I speak to my in-laws all the time. They're your in-laws for life. It's an interesting thing to consider. And I've been calling my in-laws my in-laws ever since. Yeah, you might not be with the person, but those people, if you established a relationship with them, you know, it's all good. Like I said, I just spoke to my mom. I spoke to my mother-in-law today. She was checking in on me to see how I'm doing, and I've been divorced for 15 years or something like that. So we got ready. She got ready. I got freshened up. We met her brother downstairs, and we went and got Korean barbecue and watched K-pop. And to my curiosity, they had a big, long conversation to the point of almost arguing like brothers and sisters do, over their K-pop standing. They were actually into K-pop. I couldn't follow any of it. I didn't know what was going on. It was, it was, I mean, obviously, it was a bunch of guys singing in Korean, but I didn't understand what the, 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 the hype and the frenzy was. I mean, it's basic boy band stuff, so that much I do get. We went from the restaurant to a tiki bar, which had these amazing, gigantic drinks. I drank from something that was carved out of the bottom half of a pineapple. It was really good. Umbrellas, everything. It was cool. It was cool. Talked to her brother. Her brother was good people. Talked to her just like, you know, just like talking to her in, in, in um, I mean, it was just like talking to her on the phone. She has a commanding personality. I would argue maybe possibly even domineering. And if you're not strong enough or sarcastic enough or don't have a tongue on you then you might be put off by her which I began to realize was one of the things that put so many people off with her the people that we worked with put so many people off to her I'm saying that all wrong (sighs) after a while I started to get tired man it was a travel day I was worn out I wouldn't be out all night I mean I didn't know what to do but I didn't want to be out all night I was getting tired it was rainy it was dark We hopped in little brother's truck and he dropped us back to her place and we rode on the elevator quietly. She's shorter than me. um, So I just was looking at the ceiling and she was looking at the ceiling and we kind of just rode in silence listening to the elevator music. And I said, that was a really nice place. She said it was. It was good. I, I like going there. Talked about the place for a moment and then went back to silence get off at her floor. We walk to the end of the hallway where her corner unit was, and she opens the door. By the time the door closes, 
we are all over each other, kissing and clawing at each other furiously. It came out of nowhere. I had her up against the glass and over her shoulder was the Statue of Liberty. And then she panted in my ear. I wasn't sure what to expect when you got here, but as soon as I saw you, I wanted you to bend me over my couch. And I looked at her and I said, well, how about I just press you up against this glass? And she said, that works too. The next morning I woke up in a bed that wasn't my own, something that I hadn't done in a very, very long time. Probably not since newsroom reporter lady. I was close to the ground and there was a parquet floor directly in view and shoes that weren't mine. High heel shoes, female J's. To my left outside the window, there were skyscrapers, there were cranes, and there was Lady Liberty curled up in a ball beside me was C-Sweet Lady. We woke up together. I kissed her, good morning sunshine. And I was like, so this is what it's like to wake up next to a woman. I had forgotten. And this is what it's like to wake up next to a woman and actually have her enjoy my company, I suppose, as much as I'm enjoying hers. Not waking up in bed together with backs to one another the way you, a lot of married couples do, the way I did towards the end. Not in bed with someone that you don't want to be in bed with after you finish an act that you probably shouldn't have begun in the first place, hoping that they leave sooner or later, quicker rather than sooner. She said, hey, you. And we talked about the details of the night before or earlier that morning. Kind of readdressed them, kind of walked our way through them and our experiences. And, and we talked. We talked about the events that led up to us being in bed together. And I don't know if you want to call it a postmortem or feedback or whatever, but we just talked. And then she asked, so what do you want to do for breakfast? We gave her some thoughts. She said, all right, cool, I'll order in. She put on a robe, I threw on some sweats, and we moved into her living room, turned on the TV, and breakfast came, and we started watching Narcos. And we ate, and we chilled. You know, it was just chill. Just two adults in a badass condo, or apartment, I'm not sure what it was. Just chilling, being grown, watching Netflix in the morning. Took a shower, threw on some clothes, athletic gear, because we had planned to do a spin class together because that was something that she and I were both doing at the time. And instead of doing that, we decided to just go for a walk along the pier for coffee. And we walked along all the new construction, the gigantic skyscrapers that were being built or high-rise apartments. And she explained, you know, the companies that were buying into them to bring their employees from other countries to live in those places. She talks, We talked about the demographics of the area, the changing landscape. Out on the pier, you saw evidence of what used to be the old pier, stuff that was completely destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. I mean, stuff that was there just wasn't. There was gnarled wood shooting up out of the water. And it was just kind of amazing to take it all in, but I was by water, which is one of my favorite places to be. So it was so, I don't know, relieving to be by water again. And we walked and we talked. We got coffee. I think we got a couple donuts. And we just shot the breeze. We were kind of holding hands while we were walking too, which I don't do. Not because I don't do it because I'm some I'm on some old I'm on some mess. But I haven't allowed myself to allow anybody to get that close to me to hold hands. I haven't desired to hold anybody's hand. But we were holding hands, and as we walked, I started to trip the lights fantastic through memories. I was like, wait a minute, I had an interview here back when I was like 26. Wait, I remember where this is. I didn't know that this is where we were. And then all of a sudden, I knew exactly where I was. Because before, I mean, I knew the town where I was. But I didn't know where 
I was geographically, like I had no bearings, even though I knew the city where I was. She had plans for later in the day. I think it was a baby shower or a wedding shower. I'm not sure. Um, it was never on the table for me to go with her. And she said, hey, I'm going to do this. I know you want to, like, check out the city and stuff. So why don't we go to the city? Why don't we ride over to the city together and catch up later this evening? You tell me where you want to eat, and I'll meet you there. I said, sure. We get back to the place. We get clean. We get ready for the day. And then we head out. And we share a ride. We go across, you know, on, we go through a tunnel. We end up in New York. I hop out. She keeps going. And I start at one end of Manhattan, basically lower-ish Manhattan. It wasn't completely lower Manhattan, but I start on the lower side of Manhattan. Not lower east side, just lower, southern, Soho-ish, 20, the 20s. And I make my way through every memory that I ever had from my 20s and my 30s in New York City. I literally just did a, mu a museum tour, a walking tour of my life because I hadn't been there in so long. And because, you know, I felt like I had been robbed of making it in New York by my ex-wife because she had grown up there and didn't want to be there anymore. And when she was ready to leave, I was like, but I hadn't made it yet. Hence some of our problems. So I left before I finished. I left before I put the period on my experience in New York. So it was left unfinished. It was left an open chapter in my life. So my kids, my ex, everyone had been made multiple trips back and forth to New York. I hadn't been back once. I had only been back once since leaving in 2009. And I realized that there was this almost fear of going back to the place where I didn't put a period on the experience. I didn't leave New York because I was ready to go. I left New York because my family, my, I left to support sort of my ex-wife and I left because I was willing sort of again to try something new but I didn't leave because I was ready to go I didn't leave finishing what I started there I left under duress and I left in debt and I had to pack up my life with four people put it in a moving truck and then drive cross country if you will or 16 hours south by moon, by day and night, while I waited for a truck to come a few weeks later with my stuff. So I did this walking tour of my life. I went by all the buildings where I used to work. I went by all the restaurants where I used to eat. I, I got some food from a couple of them because I'll be liking to eat. I just eat everywhere. I got a dirty water dog, even though those are not the thing to get. But I got a dirty water dog. I put, took a picture of the dog, of the, of the hot dog. I think I put, I put it on Instagram back when... I used to take pictures of anything and everything and put it on Instagram. And then I reached out to my ex's sister, my daughter's godmother, my quote-unquote in-laws, and trying to see where they were. The godmother was not even in the country. She was overseas with her boyfriend. The sister was out of state in the tri-state area, but out of state at her summer home. And mom and mom and dad were just indisposed, but they said they wanted to catch up before I left. So I continued my sojourn through my memories by myself. I went to all the sneaker stores I used to go to, and instead of looking for sneakers for me, I was photographing sneakers, steel toe Adidas, that was a thing for a little bit, and sending them to my daughter. So I continued, and then I went to ANS Plaza, which is no longer ANS Plaza, and I walked around through there. And I went as far east as I could before I got bored to, and got to the Empire State Building. And I checked in on C-Sweet Lady and she said she was good. And, you know, I told her where I wanted to eat later on. And she said, cool. And it was 100 blocks north in Harlem. And I had no interest whatsoever in taking a train or a cab, or an Uber, or nothing. I was going to walk my city the way I used to walk my city. When I walked my city with my ex, when we were just dating, when I walked my city as, an, as a resident of New York and just in my desire to get from one place to another, didn't want to be on some hot, pissy-smelling train. So I walked the streets of New York, got hot, 
got sweaty in a couple instances, instances, but I walked the streets of New York and it was amazing. I'm not going to say it's something like Crockett um, in his Prodigal Son episode on Miami Vice, even though that was supposed to be for Tubbs, a little insider trivia and not Crockett, but, you know, um, Tubbs got pushed to the back on that because Tubbs was from New York. Crockett was not. Anyway, I walked through the city as the prodigal son, the son who left before he got to put a period on his experience there. And I stopped at job after job, restaurant after restaurant, and then I hit Central Park. And when I hit Central Park, I mean, so many memories came back. Times with my ex, just times walking through the city, times being with friends, times being with family, having picnics. Oh, I remember when I was here. Oh, I remember when I was there. Looking at all the restaurant, um, not restaurants, museums and art spots that I used to hit before cutting across Central Park because you went from the east side to the west side through Central Park. And I remember, and I, I actually missed Times Square, went through Times Square. Times Square was a zoo. Even it's very walkable now. They got rid of traffic on that, on, on 6th Avenue or Avenue of the Americas so that people can walk. And I remember the fact that we hit every play. I had the distinct privilege of seeing almost every play on Broadway with my ex because she had a theater hookup and seeing how some plays were still there, how some plays were not. So getting back to Central Park, I chilled out in Central Park and the day just wore on. And interestingly enough, as I moved through the city, the clock wound down on the time that I was supposed to be meeting C-Suite Lady. And by the time I got to Harlem and I got to my favorite Ecuadorian Chinese restaurant, she was there before me, waiting for me at the bar. And I came and stood up next to her and we talked. Got a table. And I ordered my pollo a la brasa, uh, yellow rice, black beans. And they had this like vinegary stuff that you poured all over it that made it taste good. And she ordered something as well. I don't think she got the same thing, but I made suggestions because this was a spot that me and my boys were at every Friday, like during the early 90s. Um, and it was just nice. And I remember I stared at her. She was so pretty that evening. And I remember just talking to her and I was just, I, I had to ask her. I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry. How did you do it? You know, you're younger than me. Not by much, but you're younger than me. How did you get so far ahead in life to be so elevated? And she said, well, you know, Eric, I'm the daughter of a single mom. And I watched my mom struggle and scrape. And she instilled in me the value of not having to depend on anybody. So when I got out here, I had to make it. I just had to make it. And it made me think about my own experience where I have parents that are there for me and make a good amount of money and were willing to throw money at me when I was struggling, but how much that may or may not have handicapped me in my own pursuits of self-determination because there was always something to fall back on. Even them being there providing certain amounts of advice based on their own experience, but not something that was circumstantially re relevant to me may have dissuaded me. Now, I'm not saying this in anger or, or resentment or anything. I was just juxtaposing my kind of comfortable growing up experience with what she was saying and how that deposited her where she was, like a boss-ass boss. So after dinner, we strolled through Harlem and we went to a piano bar where a Russian guy was playing guitar. Don't ask me, I'm not exactly sure. We called out requests. He played them for us. We hopped in an Uber back home, and we went to sleep. It was a wonderful, wonderful day where I trail, I traipsed through my memories, and I spent time with a boss-ass boss. Spending the day retracing a path through my past energized me and reminded me of who I actually was. Who I was at my core as far as what made me happy, what I was grateful for, what I believed in, what mattered to me. I felt my 
youth, not like young youth, strong bull youth. I felt my my child, my my childhood naivete flooding back into me. All the hopes and dreams I had as a young man that had been dashed by marriage and family, but honestly and more pointedly by the imposition and the will of my ex and what she wanted for us and needed for me over who I actually was. I don't think that she was wrong for wanting what she wanted for myself and the family. But she wanted it at the expense of who I actually was. I wasn't that dude. And because of who I was, an acquiescing, people-pleasing individual, I allowed her to shape and mold me into what she wanted me to be. And then I guess I took the ball and ran with it and then turned myself into my own version, remixed version, flavored version of that thing that she wanted me to be. And ultimately, I became someone else that I never was ever intended to be. In order to fit a mold that in the end, she may have loved, but she didn't like me. Who's to say what we would or could have been had I been allowed to be authentically me? But it wasn't her fault because ultimately, she could do whatever she wants. It was up to me to stand firm, dig in, and insist on me being me. Which probably would have cost me her and the children we produced. And who I was would have remained intact. And my journey to me, though lonely and confusing as it was around the time that I met her, would have stayed on track. But that was never going to happen anyway because the guy that I was when I met my ex-wife was craving someone to bring meaning to my life. And look, although external forces and people can add, as in bring additional purpose, value, meaning to your existence, purpose has to begin within. And your grasp on that has to be so tight that it's still there when you endure the darkness and the twists and the turns along the way in the middle where everything is ugly and raggedy and doesn't make any sense because you know you're going to come out on the other side okay. It's like running a relay race, right? You're running that race, and the thing, the only thing that you're, your only job, well, you got two jobs. Win the race, but there's a job that's way more important than winning that race, and that's not letting go of the baton, making sure that baton is passed within a zone and making sure that baton never touches the ground. And a whole lot of stuff can happen in a race. You could fall down, but you can't let go of that baton. You cannot let go of the baton. That baton, that baton, that's who you are. That's your value. That's your dream. That's your purpose. That's whatever. That race, you might be behind. You might be in front, whatever. But that baton, you cannot let go of it to the point that you almost don't. It, it, it's a part of you, right? I was going to say so the, to the point that you forget about it. But no, you don't forget about it. You're consciously aware of it because you cannot let it drop no matter what you're going through. But here's the beauty of this life and all of your lives, our lives, my life. Who's to say that despite all the sidetracks, the twists and turns, the disappointments, the divorce or, pro, or plural for some of the audience listening, that you're still not on that original journey? Yeah, I'd like to say if I hadn't done X, Y, Z, I'd be at ABC. But that's just nonsense. It's conjecture. I don't know where I would be because I ain't there. I don't have the gift of foresight or looking into alternative timelines to see where I would be because none of that stuff exists, at least not in the and not in this world of reality that we live in. I didn't have any experience other than the one that I'm having to know one way or another. But I'm on this journey. I lost my way along the way, but I'm still on my way. And even if that means I only get to spend five years, four years, three, two one years, or maybe even just a few short months in my purpose, then my life will not have been in vain because I would have made an impact in that time that I was existing in my full purpose. And that, that purpose will reverberate across the lives of everyone I come into contact and live on beyond my lifespan. And it'll be a life well lived. It'll make me immortal. It'll make me immortal, just like every musician, every actor who's created a work 
that stood the test of time. So to all of you listening, to all of you who are going through it, to all of you who keep saying, I wish I had, I wish I did, I blah, blah, blah. You're still on your journey. You're just in the middle. You're in the raggedy part. You're in the messy part. So what I say to you is press on and endure. This concludes part one of Sea Sweet Lady, Won't You Be Mine, which is the season finale of the Dating After Divorce Survival Guide. So as they used to do in the 80s uh, dramas, dun-dun-dun, to be continued. wait you're like oh my god oh my god what's gonna happen to wonder woman what's gonna happen to knight rider what's gonna happen to the dukes of hazard <laughs> anyway i'd like to dedicate this episode to the memory of mr chadwick bozeman a gentleman who was in my age bracket a couple years younger than me who passed away on friday august 28 2020 after a four-year bout with colon cancer we as a world lost an actor who was all in not only in his dedication to the craft of storytelling, but in the roles he chose to inhabit and animate. As the son of a cancer survivor, because my mom is a stage four cancer survivor, based on my knowledge of the disease, the reality is that he, Mr. Chadwick Bozeman, had been acting, and in some instances acting as an action hero, for the last four years while in decline. He never got better. He only got worse. And it's absolutely mind-boggling for me that he did that. Not that he did it in private. That's his business. My health is my business. Y'all's health is your business. I didn't need to know anything about his health. It's none of my business. His choice to do whatever he wants to do. Him being a celebrity, the only thing he owes, and I put owes in quotation marks, is to do his best job, just like we all owe it to life to do our best job. But for me, he now takes up rank alongside my roster of personal role models and heroes who are people that live completely in their purpose. I'm not talking about ideological, philosophical, you know, people that really, really, really have changed history. I'm talking about people that like just really motivate me. And people that mo- personally motivate me are people that live completely in their purpose and by, by sheer virtue of their will change the world. So he's up there now with the Jordan and the Kobe and a couple of the other people that I think are just extraordinary human beings. So I'm dedicating this episode to him and the loved ones that he leaves behind. Wakanda forever. <laughs>